Well, as you can witness from this brief review of only a, a selected number of uh, Professor Tao's publications, he is eminently qualified to speak to us on the topic of the origins of the Hebrew Bible. And his paper this morning is entitled, The Development of the Written Text of the Hebrew and Greek Bibles. He will be speaking first, then uh, Professor Charlesworth, and after that, after both of them have spoken, there'll be an opportunity for questions. Thank you, Professor Todd. stand here? Okay. Good morning. I'm just say a few words. Do you hear me? Oh, okay, good. Uh, what a pleasure it is to be here with you this morning at the beginning of our meeting. I'm very grateful to our host here, to Greg Evans and to Lee McDonald for having arranged this, organized this, and for having brought us from far and from nearby. Um, the more precise uh, title of my paper is The Septuagint as a Source for the Literary Criticism of Hebrew Scripture with Examples from Jeremiah, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, Joshua, and First Samuel. That probably is not the title that you have in front of you, but this is the title as it emerged through my continuing uh, scholarship. In several scripture books, uh, the Masoretic text displays a substantial number of major differences when compared with the Septuagint and to a lesser degree with several Qumran scrolls and the Samaritan Pentateuch. The other ancient versions were translated from Hebrew texts close to MT. Thousands of small differences between the ancient sources help us in understanding them, but the present analysis is limited to larger variations, in particular those bearing on the literary criticism. When differentiating between small details relevant to textual criticism and large differences bearing on literary criticism, we follow formal criteria, a difference involving one or two words and sometimes an isolated case of a single verse is considered a small difference, while a discrepancy involving a section or chapter indicates a substantial difference, often relevant to literary criticism. However, a group of seemingly unrelated small differences might also display a common pattern pointing to a more extensive phenomenon. This pertains to many small theological changes in the empty, empty is a Masoretic text of Samuel and short readings in the Septuagint of Ezekiel, etc., etc. Who created these various types of differences between ancient texts? In very broad terms, the authors and editors who were involved in the, in the composition of the text inserted changes that we characterize today as large differences. At a later stage, scribes who copied the completed compositions inserted many smaller changes and also made mistakes while copying. However, the distinction between these two levels is unclear at both ends, since early copyists considered themselves petty collaborators in the creation process of scripture, while authors and editors were also copyists. We submit that most of the large differences, such as those analyzed in this study, pertain to an early stage in the development of Hebrew scripture, while some scholars, such as Schenker, believe that major changes were still inserted in empty as late as the Hasmonean period. The larger differences often have a bearing on the exegesis and literary criticism of Hebrew scripture, involving such areas as authorship, date, possible revisional layers, and the structure of the composition. 
Readings found in ancient manuscripts are tangible and need to be taken into consideration in exegesis, while scholarly hypotheses are mere assumptions, including even the most established ones, such as the Deuteronomistic revision of the historical books or the documentary hypothesis for the Pentateuch. While readings found in ancient Hebrew manuscripts provide stable evidence, there are many problems on the slippery road of evaluating the ancient versions, especially the Septuagint. One of these is that what appears to one scholar to be a safely reconstructed Hebrew variant is for another one a specimen of a translator's tendentions rendering. Literary analysis of the Hebrew Bible is only interested in evidence of the first type, since it sheds light on the background of the different Hebrew texts that were once circulating. The translator's tendential changes are also interesting, but at a different level, that of scripture exegesis. But you can't have your cake and eat it too. A specific rendering either represents a greatly deviating Hebrew text or a displaced the translator's exegesis. Now, how are we to differentiate between the two? For almost every variation in the Septuagint, one finds opposite views expressed, and there are only very few objective criteria for evaluating these variations. Probably the best criteria relate to external Hebrew evidence supporting the Septuagint, the argument from translation techniques suggesting either a free or a little approach, and the existence of Hebraisms supporting a Hebrew underlying text. We first turn to the first proof that text, that of the Septuagint of Job. And uh, as we go along, you'll find uh, examples in the handouts. So this is handout uh, the first item on it. The translation of Job is much shorter than its counterpart in MT. It is possible, is it possible, that the translator deleted what amounts to one-sixth of the total number of verses in the book? In the absence of external evidence such as Qumran manuscripts, we have to assess the translator's approach from an analysis of its techniques. If a translator represented his underlying Hebrew text rather faithfully in small details, we would not expect him to insert major changes in the text. In other words, when we find major differences from MT in a faithful translation, they must reflect a different Hebrew text. On the other hand, if a translator were not faithful to his parent text in small details, even paraphrasing it occasionally, he could have also inserted major changes in the translation. Translators were not consistent, but we definitely would not expect to find two diametrically opposed approaches in a single translation unit. This brings us back to the translation uh, in Greek of Job. In a very few cases, we find a word-for-word -word rendering of MT in the simple chapter chosen for this purpose, namely chapter 34. I will look for my own copy of the handout. Now, I, I have one. Okay, thank you. Here we find several unusual equivalents and small changes, as, as I have indicated in, in English. It's not easy, but I've tried to take those examples which are best rendered into English. Uh, so you have some uh, which I assume to be unusual equivalents uh, in small words. in uh, section uh, A, 
number one. For example, in verse 10, wickedness, wrongdoing in the Masoretic text and completely at the level of uh, exegesis in the Greek you have impiously to pervert what is right. You also have rewriting on a small scale in group number two. For example, if you take the third example there, he observes his every step and in Greek and nothing of what they can of what they do has escaped him. Having established the translator's freestyle in small elements, it is easy to accept the assumption that he also rephrased complete verses, sometimes in a major way. And this you have in groups number three and four. If you take the first example in group number three, for he says man gains nothing when he is in God's favor, and in Greek, for do not say there will be no visitation of a man when there is visitation to him from the Lord. And you have additions. As in the single example in section number four, all flesh will die together and every mortal return to dust. And then the Greek has added whence to he was formed. Now, we have these changes, some additions, but most frequently the translator actually shortened his texts. Usually, usually we can merely guess at the reason for the abbreviation. The main argument for assuming that the translator abbreviated and did not find an already short Hebrew text is his free translation style. According to Dorn, the translator's misunderstanding of the difficult language of Job often occasioned this freedom. Dorn's view may occasionally be correct, but the translator also deleted uncomplicated utterances. A major factor in a translator's abbreviation of his Hebrew Vorlage may well be its verbosity and repetitiveness. The translator's shortening thus bears on the history of exegesis and not on our understanding of the Hebrew composition. This obviously has to be uh, gone into uh, more in detail, but my a major argument in giving this example at the beginning of my talk is that this specific example, the Greek text of Job, which is much shorter than the Hebrew text, is not relevant to the things we are talking about today. In this case, it is clearly the freedom of the Greek translator that made him shorten uh, the Hebrew text as much as he did uh, in uh, the Greek rendering making it one six shorter now you have to go through the various examples in order to make this a more convincing case all the other examples that I will present are positive examples the example from Job I call a negative one in the positive examples I believe that we can find uh, we can uh, locate in the Septuagint, uh, so many cases where the major differences between the Hebrew and the Greek derive not from the translator's freedom, but from the fact that he probably had a completely different uh, Hebrew parent text, Vorlage, a completely different text in front of me, and that's the major issue we are talking about today. Uh, the first example is the one from Jeremiah. And uh, some of you know that I've uh, written much about uh, this case of Jeremiah, but we will give some examples, uh, of course, today. In this uh, book of Jeremiah, we find, on the one hand, the evidence of the Greek translation, the Septuagint, 
and two Qumran scrolls, four to Jeremiah B and D. And on the other hand, we find the Masoretic text, uh, which goes together with the Syriac, the Targumim, and the Vulgate. The two differ in two major issues. Uh, you'll find that the Greek text and the uh, uh, Qumran scrolls are shorter than uh, the Hebrew text in one-sixth of the text. Now, this we can say very clearly with regard to the Greek, uh, because that text obviously is complete, but the Qumran scrolls are very small, very fragmentary, but we can still see the nature of those scrolls from the uh, uh, fragments uh, preserved. And uh, the two fragments preserved uh, derive from uh, chapter 10, uh, from which we will read, and uh, from chapter 43, uh, which uh, may well be on the handout, but we will not have time uh, to go into uh, all of these. So, one element is the Greek uh, and the Hebrew of Qumran being shorter than the Masoretic text, and the other element is that the sequence of chapters uh, and sometimes of verses in those text also differs from that of the Masoretic text. In my view, we are having two editorial stages uh, in the development of the Hebrew book. Uh, the first stage, which I call edition one, which is represented in, uh, the, in, the, in the Septuagint text and in the two Qumran scrolls, and the second stage, edition two, represented in the Masoretic text. And we can actually see and summarize, uh, see the, the reasoning behind the expanding of edition one to edition two. Uh, most of the editions in edition two reflect editorial expansions of ideas and details in the context, stylistic changes, as well as theological and other concerns of that revision. And if you go into the details, you will see rather amazing how well the second editor uh, arranged, uh, succeeded in inserting his changes into the already existing text of edition one. Everything I say in this example, as well in the next ones, is tendentious. You hear my tendentious and very subjective view. There's nothing objective in this, in this area. However, uh, in this case, what I'm, what I'm looking for is support. Uh, and the support I find in the Hebrew scrolls from Qumran. Uh, if uh, before 1950 everything we had to say about the Septuagint wasn't sure, now that we found Hebrew scrolls in Qumran that are equally short as the Septuagint in some ideas, in some words, in some verses, we assume that those small scrolls from Qumran were small scrolls, part of a larger scroll that had altogether the same character as the Septuagint. And I'm uh, really uh, exemplifying this with uh, three chapters, uh, reading only from one, that is chapter uh, number 10, uh, number B on your handout. And you will see this is uh, chapter 10, which deals with the, uh, the mockery of the idols and the praise of the Lord. It's a chapter which in the Masoretic text has both elements. Most of the verses deal with the mockery of the idols. They can't speak, they can't walk. There's nothing good in them. And then there are also verses which praise the Lord, the God of Israel. Now it's interesting that if you go to the Septuagint and to the Qumran scroll, reconstructed, as I told you, there's nothing objective here, uh, that you will see uh, in the Septuagint uh, that the praise of the Lord isn't there. 
And in the Qumran scrolls, there's no way that you can insert uh, in, in any reconstruction the verses that deal with the praise of the Lord. We have to turn to logics. You have one text, the Masoretic text, with uh, both the mockery and the praise of the Lord. You, while I speak, you have to be very clever and also read in the handout. Uh, and you will see that in the handout, uh, the sections that are missing in the Septuagint are uh, printed here in bold. And those are mainly the, the verses that deal with the praise of the Lord. And as I said, we have to turn to logics. The one thing, although I to I'm telling you that my talk is tendentious, to a certain extent, uh, because one thing is the facts. There, the fact is that there is a short text and there's a long text. The tendentious part in, in what I'm saying is that I believe that the development was from the short to the long and not the other way around. And that's what I mean when I say I turn to logics because uh, I obviously start with an example that's the easiest for me. Uh, I believe that it's hard to imagine that there would be a scribe that would omit, this is religious literature, that there is a scribe uh, who would omit verses dealing with the praise of the Lord. It's much more logical to assume that's just the other way around. Just as we know that in the five books of the, of the Psalter, at the end of each book of the Psalter, uh, a small section, a verse, two verses, of praise have been added at this late stage of uh, dividing the Psalter into five parts. Just by the same token, I believe that at a certain compositional stage of the book of Jeremiah, uh, this praise was added in what I call edition number two. Now, the section that we're not reading, and you can read at home, is chapter 43, where the Septuagint uh, has a shorter text again, lacking certain personal names, and I believe these have been added in addition to of the Masoretic text. And this goes together with the Qumran scroll. And in the third example, which again we are not reading, very interesting in chapter 27, where you can follow the logic of the second edition, how its elements were inserted, and clearly create a context that makes less sense. What I'm saying is that the Masoretic text, if you read it carefully, of the last verses of chapter 27, make less sense than the shorter text of uh, the Septuagint. Uh, and so that too is a clear example of, uh, a, of an expanded text. So far, the book of Jeremiah. And according to the sequence of the biblical books, I now continue with the book of Deuteronomy. This is our... Uh, second example and on your handout uh, number C please remember what we are giving now is a sequence of examples and in this second example uh, we uh, read in the book of Deuteronomy the song of Moses one of the most uh, beautiful songs in Hebrew scripture and uh, thinking about the complete Song of Moses uh, we, and thinking about its tendencies uh, we see that this song describes the relation between God and his people it starts off by inviting heaven and earth to listen to the poet upon which it depicts God's justice Israel's disloyalty and God's punishment of Israel and of its enemies then there is a festive ending in verse 43, which we will uh, read today. This festive ending draws on motifs mentioned in its beginning 
and describes God's vengeance on Israel's enemies. Once again, the regular print on your handout is empty. And in this, time, in this case, we have added verses in bold in the Septuagint, as well as in Qumran scroll 4Q Deuteronomy Q. Very small, very interesting, intriguing scroll. So we have a longer text this time in the textual witnesses other than the Masoretic text. What's going on here? We see that the festive ending of the songs differs in the various versions. In the Masoretic text, the poem concludes with an invocation calling upon the nations to rejoice with God for his punishments on Israel's enemies. I don't know exactly how to translate and this is where the difficulty in English comes in. But I've written this down. The translations here are mostly from the Jewish Publication Society translation, which I consider to be a superb translation. Uh, be glad or acclaim, O nations, his people. Um, I say it's a superb translation, but occasionally since it's a Jewish traditional translation, occasionally it avoids the problems by playing with the English language. And this may well be such a case, because Be Glad is my translation, Acclaim is the translation of JPS. Uh, but it's very strange in English, because it's very strange in Hebrew. Be glad, O nations, his people. What does it mean? We don't know. Uh, the Septuagint has, Be glad, O skies, with him. So, what, what do we have here in the Hebrew? In the Hebrew, the poem concludes with an invocation calling upon the nations to rejoice with God for his punishments on Israel's enemies. On the other hand, according to additional columns, found only in the Septuagint and the Qumran scroll, the heaven and divine beings are called upon to rejoice with God, as in verse 4, the beginning, which reads, Give ear, O heavens, let me speak. Let the earth hear the words I utter. It seems that empty, now this is a suggestion accepted by many, many scholars, it seems that empty shortened the long version of the Septuagint and the Qumran scroll during one of its compositional stages. One of the arguments in favor of this assumption is the fact that the poetic structure of verse 43 is incomplete and empty, rendering the additional columns necessary. Now, a few remarks on this uh, text. The Septuagint reads, together with the Qumran scroll, Be glad, O skies, with him, instead of empty, O nations, be glad, his people. The main difference between the two versions concerns the middle word in the first colon. In empty, the nations, goyim, I invoke to gladden his people, as opposed to be glad with him in the Septuagint. It would not be an unusual scriptural thought if the poet were to address the nations in this way. But in this particular poem, the invocation seems to be out of place. The essence of this poem is that God helped Israel to survive its wars by killing these very nations. And the poem is full of thoughts of vengeance against them. For example, in verse 35, to be my vengeance and recompense at the time of their at the time that their food falters. Yet the, their day of disaster is near, and destiny rushes upon them. It would therefore be very unusual if the same nations were invoked to be happy. Assuming that empty reflects a later text, it probably inserted the following changes. 
skies of the Septuagint was changed to peoples. Be glad to make glad. And Amo, Ein Memvar, Amo, was read as Immo, with him in the Septuagint, and changed to Amo, his people. Now let's look at, an, at the verse number B. Let all the sons of God worship him in the Septuagint. This colon, occurring also in the Qumran scroll, while lacking in the Septuagint, is paralleled by other verses in empty, in which the sons of God, also named divine beings, are mentioned. For example, Psalm 82, God stands in the divine assembly. Among the divine beings, he pronounces judgment. And Psalm 29:1, ascribe to the Lord, O divine beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. In Deuteronomy, the sons of God are mentioned only in the Septuagint. And this is my point. The sons of God are mentioned only in the Septuagint and the Qumran scroll, but not in MT. This colon was probably removed from the Masoretic text in an act of theological censorship. So this is the point. This is theological censorship that this particular part of a verse now present in the Septuagint and in the Qumran scrolls, removed in the Masoretic text. This is an assumption and not an easy one because, after all, also elsewhere we have the sons of God in Hebrew Scripture. We believe that this is, you might say, a polytheistic element in the Masoretic text which was removed from the text uh, sorry a polytheist I, I repeat this is a polytheistic element in the earlier text now the Septuagint which was removed in the Masoretic text such <coughs> censorship is never consistent and so that we still have elsewhere um, elements of polytheism in Hebrew scripture. If this is correct, this is not a small detail changed uh, in the earlier text, but it's a major change that happened at one of what I call the compositional stages of Hebrew scripture, for which we need the Septuagint and the Qumran scroll in order to understand better what happened there. This was our second example. The third example I call the rewritten book of First Kings. Now please note that if we are right, uh, then we have given two examples. Jeremiah and Deuteronomy in which the text, other than the Masoretic text, the Septuagint and Qumran scrolls, were earlier than the Masoretic text. So we have those two stages. Early text, Septuagint, later stage, Masoretic text. In this, our third example, we do it the other way around, and I thought about this in choosing my examples for you. At this, with this example, we now have the Masoretic text, our Bible, so to speak, and in the Septuagint, we have a later text. And now, this is, again, not a later text uh, at the level of a small change. No, we are talking about major changes in the Septuagint. And I invite you all to read the Septuagint. You can read it easily in English. To read the Septuagint of First Kings, which you'll find extremely interesting and extremely diff different uh, I decided uh, next year, starting this fall, to give a special course at my university on the Septuagint of First Kings because more and more I find these in interesting books. And I say First Kings, it's not First Samuel, not Second Samuel, it's not Second Kings, it's First Kings, this book only. And in First Kings, in the Greek incidentally, this is called Third Kingdoms, but that's how the way the Septuagint is arranged. This book 
differs essentially from the Masoretic text. There are various tendencies in the Greek translation, which I believe are based on an earlier Hebrew text. We uh, noticed a layer of reinterpretation of several of the chapters dealing with Solomon. And we note the rearrangements of sections with special attention to chronological sequence. Um, one of the scholars, uh, David Gooding, wrote a paper once, several, many years ago, called uh, Pedantic Timetabling, because he believed that the... Uh, he, he called this the Greek translator, but I believe it's not the Greek translator, but the Hebrew text behind the Greek translator was very pedantic in putting the right sequence to... The, uh, the elements of the story into the uh, right sequence. Now we have more in First uh, Kings. We have enormous amounts of uh, duplication, duplications of material. The duplication means that a section found in one place was found twice in the Septuagint, and as a group of uh, verses which really is not, until today, is unclear. In the second chapter of First Kings, we have two groups of verses, we call them miscellanies, of verses around uh, Solomon's wisdom, which at strange places in the story are inserted there, and they give examples of how wise Solomon was not, uh, in his wisdom of building, in marrying Pharaoh's daughter and in his arrangement of the kingdom. Basically, these are some of the most major changes between the Masoretic text and uh, the Greek of the Septuagint. Uh, I believe that it's safe to say that these changes are based on a different Hebrew text. Now, this would involve a long uh, way of explaining, of going into details, of showing Hebraisms behind the translation here and there. When we say Hebraism, we mean that the Greek is really not Greek, but the Greek is Hebrew. If I give you a simple example, if you say in Hebrew... Uh, he is so many years old. In Hebrew you would say, he is a son of 20 years. So if you see in Greek also the expression, he is a son of 20 years, you know it's not Greek, but it's Hebrew. So we have several such examples. But basically, the translation is very faithful. Not very, it's faithful, the translator of 1 Kings. But in these, except for these major uh, sections that I'm talking about. Now, the major sections are, among others, in chapter 2, in chapter 5, and chapter 11. And on your handout, you have a section from chapter 2, which I'm not talking about. And this is, but you'll find it interesting to read it maybe later on. This is a section we don't have in the Hebrew. Uh, it's composed of all kinds of duplications of verses, and people are struggling about uh, with it until this very day. Books have been written just on those verses in chapter 2. Um, they're kind of midrash, we say, kind of Jewish uh, uh, explanation, uh, just like the rabbis. It's revision, it's rewriting. Uh, not very well known in scholarship because maybe uh, it doesn't help us to explain the Masoretic text so not everyone writes about it. Um, and the section I, I want to uh, mention in particular is in uh, 1 Kings 5 on your handout. Um, and we note the contents 
of the last verse of chapter 4 and the first 14 verses of chapter 5 of MT differs much from that of the Septuagint in three kingdoms. In MT, this chapter describes the extent of Solomon's realm and its internal prosperity, his daily consumption of food, the provisions brought to him, his wisdom, the pre first preparation for the building of the temple consisting of Solomon's cooperation with Hiram and the forced labor. Several of the elements in chapter 5 are included in the Septuagint in a different sequence, while some are lacking and others have been added. The sequence in the Septuagint is as follows. Provisions brought to Solomon, that's verse 1, which is really verse 7-8 of the Masoretic text, his daily consumption of food, the extent of his realm, his wisdom, Solomon's liaison with Pharaoh's daughter, his cooperation with Hiram and the forced labor. The, list, the details listed above show that the Septuagint added the story about Pharaoh's daughter in verses 14a and b. These verses are more appropriate here than in empty of uh, chapter 9, as is the placement of this uh, verses 7-8 of the Masoretic text as in verse 1 of the Septuagint. The Septuagint left out several verses. More so than the Masoretic text, the Septuagint forms a literary unity, which was probably generated after the creation of the disharmonious text of MT, in which miscellaneous material is often juxtaposed throughout the book. Now this again would bring us to a long discussion because the Masoretic text has strange sequences in uh, First Kings and I believe that the Septuagint created more of a unity. A different view would be just the other way around to say the, the Septuagint is more logical so it's more original. Now we started a little late, uh, but still I don't have time to give you all of my examples. And so we skip uh, the various examples, but I will take talk about example number E, because it's very important. Uh, a combined book of Joshua Judges, question mark. Joshua 24 contains Joshua's speech at the end of his career, re uh, reviewing Israel's history and invoking the people to renew the covenant with the Lord. After the tribe's renewal of that covenant, the chapter narrates the death of Joshua and Eleazar, upon which the Septuagint contains a section that is not found in empty at the very end of the book, and this is you have in your handout. The Hebraic diction of this passage allows for a relatively reliable reconstruction of the Greek into Hebrew. For example, the phrase, and it happened after these things in the beginning of verse 33 in the Septuagint, but not the empty, reflects frequently occurring in Scripture. The addition in the Septuagint text of Joshua repeats phrases found elsewhere in Joshua Judges. It ends with Judges 3.12, that is, the account of the judge Ehud and his oppressor Eglon, bypassing the stories of chapters 1 and 2 and the first half of chapter 3. The added section of the Septuagint is not a real addition to MT. But if these added verses are viewed together with the remainder of Joshua, they reflect a shorter and earlier book of Joshua Judges. In that combined early version of Joshua Judges, Joshua was followed directly by the story of Ehud in Judges 3. The sequence of events narrated at the end of the Greek book of Joshua depict what may well have been the original sequence of events, the death of Joshua and Eleazar, movement of the ark, service of Finchas, beginning of the people's sin, and the first story typifying the chain of events in the book of Judges involving the impression 
of the Israelites by Eglon and the miraculous saving by Ehud. So I apologize, I cannot read with you the other uh, examples, including the one additional page which uh, is circulating. And I talk about, give briefly a few remarks uh, at the end. First of all, uh, I believe that when we continuing our searches, we will find uh, not very many, but, but, but actually many additional examples uh, in which the Greek text differs recensionally from the Hebrew text. And uh, in all those cases, what we are looking for is external support so that we will not so that our discussion will not be impressionistic we want to see that in those cases we are dealing with a septuagint translation that is at least relatively literal so we can trust the translator translator and when he goes astray we know he probably went astray because his hebrew text was much different we occasionally find uh, good examples of Hebraisms, and we sometimes have examples of, uh, sometimes we have uh, examples of external evidence, uh, mainly Qumran's cross. We must build up a trust in these translators, because otherwise we are left with these impressionistic views, which we have so often in scholarship about. Uh, say the uh, items in Joshua or the much deviating text in Esther now what we have uh, if we go uh, and look in the other books uh, you'll find that the book of the example which I uh, not on the handout you'll find that the book of Esther is completely different in Greek from the Hebrew it's a different book it's not a Greek translation of the Hebrew it is a Greek translation of a Hebrew text which is in itself a rewriting of the story there are major sections now called the editions A, B, C, D, F major editions but these editions are also uh, translated from the Hebrew uh, I've been asked to talk uh, in a class here at the university and in that class we will talk especially on uh, the book of Esther Daniel is a different book in Greek Ezekiel is not a different book but it's much different it's a shorter text the end of Exodus completely different only five chapters, but still. The story of David and Goliath, completely different because it's much shorter. Uh, Proverbs is a difficult case, but it's not completely different. It's rather different at times. Um, I could go on, but these are still, these are our major examples. Uh, the uh, genealogies in, uh, in the book of uh, Genesis are also uh, quite different in the Greek uh, from the Masoretic text. Now, is the book, is the Greek text of the Septuagint so different from the Masoretic text? Yes, it often is. Is the Greek text of the Septuagint the most different witness from the Masoretic text or maybe the Syriac too no in summarizing the complete evidence we see the Masoretic text our Bible so to speak major text we see the Septuagint often differing as in the main part of my talk the Syriac the Pshita is like the Masoretic text the Vulgate is like the Masoretic text the Qumran texts are not like the Masoretic texts, but they differ less on the whole, to the extent that this can be at all compared. They differ less 
than the Greek text. So this then uh, brings us to say that basically the Greek text has an exclusive status among the various uh, textual evidences of Hebrew scripture. And this should lead to some thoughts. Why, is, why was it that the Greek text is so different? And I can only suggest some ideas. I mean, but they will be along the lines of one, it could be that the Greek text was based on Hebrew text earlier than those used in the other sources. And two, it could be that the Greek text came from, well, the, the Hebrew text on which the Greek is based came from social circles different from the ones that espouse the Masoretic text. All this brings us to thoughts about the whole development of Scripture, the whole question of the original, so-called original text, uh, on which I have elaborated in a paper uh, edited in a book by uh, Lee MacDonald. Um, and in short, we could say that it is still an open question and we have to think about many things uh, when making a mental picture of how the Hebrew Bible developed. And basically, the question of the original text, it may, may not be completely open, but we have to change some patterns in, the, in our thinking of the 18th, 19th century of what an original text is. And in short, what we should see is we should see different stages in the development of the composition of Hebrew scripture, uh, on some of which we have learned, on all of which we have learned from the Masoretic text, but on some of which we are now learning also from uh, the Septuagint. So the Septuagint is important not only for the small details relevant to textual criticism, but important also for the large details bearing on exegesis and literal criticism. Thank you.